Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Where are you? I'm in our bike shop right now at 16th and Sanchez in San Francisco. I am right across the bay from Mike, uh, but I'm at home in Oakland, California, sitting in my living room. And you are? I am what? I'm hanging out. <laughs> oh, I'm Chaz. So I, I'm Chaz Christensen. I ride for MASH and I ride for a bunch of other cool companies and just kind of generally shred my way through life. I'm Mike Martin. I am a photographer that has learned how to be a product manager and manufacturer in the bike industry. And uh, I'm a dad and a husband and a dog walker. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Fellas, it's really good to to catch up with you um, at this rather strange time in our sort of bike riding lives. But I want to go back right to the beginning of MASH and Mike first. How did the whole MASH thing come about? Was it the shop first or was it a collection of people first and the shop came out of that? How did it begin? I moved to San Francisco at the end of 1999 and moved here as a like a commercial and editorial photographer so was doing um you know shooting work for clients and i think by like 2002 one of my photo assistants was riding a track bike and and i i had come from bmx and skateboarding and just loved this puzzle of trying to figure out how these guys were using these bikes on the street that just seemed like um like the wrong tool, you know? And so, uh, through my friend, Nick, you know, I got a bike and had been seeing, you know, messengers using them. And, and so as a side project, I wanted to like, see if I could, you know, follow these guys and make it feel like you're going on a ride with them. So I made a little short video and entered that into the bike film festival, the bicycle film festival in like 2005, I think. And then through that had met a uh, skateboard photographer, Gabe Morford, who was also riding the bikes and we were able to team up and, and then really like double down and make like a full length video um, by 2007. And it was simultaneously when the internet had really become accessible to a lot more people and connected people globally. And so it was uh, accelerated the way that people had access to information and um, saw what these guys were doing and how they were using the bike. And um, it just, 
it, it gave us like kind of an audience globally, which was a lot of fun and gave us the opportunity to, you know, to travel and, um, just, that was kind of the start of it. What about the name MASH? Because you have to be a certain age to think about like the 70s TV series about the Vietnam War. Was that the inspiration? <laughs> no, I think it, it was slang at the time. I think that, you know, um, some of the writers would say, you know, that they just wanted to go mash around. And I've, I'm pretty sure that term came from like maybe your your coach at the and how they would tell you you're mashing your gear if you were just like riding in too steep of a gear. So there's probably a machismo piece to that. <laughs> what about you, Chaz? How did you get involved in it? Well, while all of that stuff was happening in San Francisco, I was living in Portland, Oregon, and I kind of found out about track bikes in, in a different way. Like I was commuting. I had a cyclocross bike. I worked at a butcher shop as a butcher, and I ran a screen printing studio. And I was, so I was riding around town a lot and I saw these guys riding around with no brakes. And I was like, what is that? I couldn't even wrap my head around it. Found out they were bike messengers, kind of through a series of strange coincidences, ended up going to an alley cat in Portland and then kind of got hooked on street racing from there on a track bike. I didn't even have a proper track bike. I built like a road conversion, you know, with like a suicide rear wheel where you uh, take an old free hub or freewheel wheel and then lock tied a cog on the bottom bracket lockering. Um, so I kind of came into it like kind of a DIY way, but still with like messengers and racing in the street. But I remember seeing MASH come out and being like, what is that? Like, who are those yahoos in San Francisco? Like, man, I, I remember I actually didn't have a really high opinion of it. I think a lot of people in Portland didn't because we were like so hardcore, like street messengers, you know, in Portland. And we were like, it's all these videos about this. I really think it's, it was just us being really jealous that no one was making videos of us. But I actually used to race with Walton Brush and Kyle Murphy and a lot of the guys that later on I rode with in MASH, they were high schoolers in Portland at the time when I was working as a messenger downtown. I got a messenger job eventually, um, quit being a butcher and started working as a bike messenger on a track bike. And they would come out to Alley Cats and, and race. And if they podiumed or whatever, which they wouldn't do a lot because Walton and Kyle were like really fast, they would stand out in front of the bar wherever the after party was for like hours till someone like threw him a t-shirt because they were in high school and they couldn't come inside <laughs> the bar. <laughs> and I remember at the time, specifically in Portland, they were really cracking down on, on, uh, on brakeless bikes. And so we were, messengers were getting a ton of flack from the police. Everyone was getting tickets, but then Walton and Kyle would get off there on their lunch break at high school and go sprint around downtown, just blowing every red light they could see for a half an hour. And the police would like get all crazy. Cause there's, you know, these people running lights and just generally acting like maniacs in downtown Portland on like a Tuesday afternoon. And then they would go back to school and then the police would come and like ticket all the messengers. And finally we asked <laughs> Walton, we were like, what are you doing, man? Like you're, making, you're blowing up our spot. And he was like, dude, I'm practicing for alley cats. You know, he's like, you guys ride your bikes all day. I got to practice. I'm in high school. We were like, what? And, uh, and then we like, and I moved, then I moved to San Francisco eventually, I think in uh, 2000, 2008, early, early part of 2008, I moved to San Francisco and worked as a messenger in San Francisco. And uh, and then Mike, through a race every year, there's a, a marathon or like a running race called the um, Beta Breakers. Mike, right? Or is it Breakers to Bay? Yeah. Which way does it go? Beta Breakers. Beta Breakers, yeah. So you run from the bay side of the city to the, the ocean side to where the beach is. And Mike always threw a race called Breakers to Bay on the same day, which is an alley cat that started at the beach and raced to the bay. So you essentially had to race the opposite direction of this running race that had like – 
you know, 10, 15,000 people. It's like a huge party. Everyone gets the costumes and they drink and like, it's this massive thing. And so then, and he would route the race. So you had to cross the running race like multiple times. So it wasn't just like a straight up alley cat. You also had to like, you know, get off your bike and like pick it up above your head and like run through a sea of like drunken people at like 11 o'clock in the morning. And so I raced that race and the prize was one of the exclusive like prototype Mash Chinelli frames. This was right when Mash and Chinelli started working together. And I knew all the messengers that were part of MASH from the SF messenger scene. And like, they all had these bikes and I was like, I want to win that frame. Like that's, that's like one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. And so I won it. I won the race, got the frame and was actually considering selling it because I was like a broke bike messenger. And then Mike approached me afterwards and was like, Hey, do you need any help with building this up? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, I mean, I could get you like wheels or like cranks. Like I can help you do this. And that was like my introduction to match was like winning that frame and then having Mike approach me and be like, do you need help with, with this? Can I help you, you know, kind of grow and like make this easier for you? And that was like, it still is to this day. Like I feel like the tenant of match is Mike is just there to kind of support and foster and nurture and like help all of us grow in whatever aspect we want to. Um, but then I, I got to think I got a set of cranks for Mike um, to build it up to take it to Tokyo. And then Gabe Morford gave me a kit, which was my first, mash kit ever was my first kit ever i'd never had like a bib and a jersey before i'd done a lot of bike touring and had bike shorts and like whatever but then i got like a kit and there wasn't even really like a team like at that point that was just kind of this they had this kind of like loose collection and walton was well i kind of reconnected with walton because mike and walton had connected and kyle and so i was like oh these guys like they they ride with mash like i know them team high school they're cool and then eventually kind of blossomed into that but i kind of came up from a totally different angle where at first i was like who are these yahoos? And then I realized <laughs> that it was like, oh, wow, this is like, this isn't, we always just thought it was about like, I don't know, I guess the assumption from the beginning was like, you saw it and you're like, this is like a lot of money. It's like pro skateboarding and all this. And like, we thought that was weird. But then when I finally met Mike and like met Gabe and saw what they were trying to do, it was like, no, this is not about like money and like trying to get big and famous. This is just about like, they just want to help people do what they're doing and like give them a little boost in whatever direction that they're already heading in. It sounds like, Mike, you wanted to help, but you wanted to have fun and in some ways just be true to the experience of enjoying the bike, if I'm not overthinking it, because there's so many distractions, whether it be sponsorships or proper races or anything else. But especially now when we're all at lockdown, it makes you realize what you really love about just riding a bicycle. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like I said before, I kind of came from it from a really like non-competitive background and you know like maybe style was more important than you know shaving a fraction of a second or whatever and I just knew that maybe coming from a non-competitive spot opened the door to a lot more people and maybe some young kid didn't want to put on spandex at first to ride his bike but could relate to it on the street you know but then that kind of opened that uh, whatever that rabbit hole and you kind of start chasing down, you know, falling in love with bikes and different categories of bikes. And that's kind of been a common theme over the years to help kind of foster those. Yeah. It's interesting. That it's become like an alternative scene that more recently, some of the very big pro teams have adopted. I've talked to Lachlan Morton uh, and Alex House, for example, about EF's alternative calendar and going off and doing gravel races. And, you know, they haven't done a, they haven't done a fixie, crit yet or um, 
uh, or an alley cat race, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did. So they, you know, the mainstream is slowly coming around to your way of thinking. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I, we met Lachlan through Red Hook, and he's such a good dude, and his brother uh, Gus is such a good guy. And yeah, we, I really admire like you know their lens on cycling. I think it's just more fun too. I mean, I think a lot of it is especially. Like I've talked with Lachlan and Gus about this a little bit and they're specifically, they're like, dude, the pro scene is so like Mike said, like fact focus on like fractions of a second. And it's like, it's a job and it's all about these like marginal gains and like, there's not as much fun and style to it, you know, and the style, especially the style to it is like so dictated by the sponsors and everything, you know? And whereas like, I think the way we approach it is it's like, it's cool to win. And like we've MASH has definitely seen its fair share of podiums and, and taken home enough W's and trophies to, you know, keep us stoked. But like, it's always been more about like, having fun and like looking really good and like pushing the envelope and like letting your own style come through, but also mostly just having a really good time and going to races and doing things because it's enjoyable, you know, not necessarily because we need to go like win or like want to show somebody something more just like this will be a really good time. And that first Chinelli frame with the down sloping top tube was so attractive. So such a cool bike and, Mike, did you notice that actually a lot of people woke up and took notice of that? And did you feel the increase in attention at that point? Uh, Yeah, that was a fun time. Like, you know, some of our friends were riding like these really aggressive, like 650C front, like time trial bikes, because you used to go to bike swaps or, and, and you could get this like, you know, these hand-me-downs of time trial parts and just random weird parts for your bike really cheap. Um, and so I think at, at the time, like a couple of our friends liked these really aggressive looking, you know, kind of knuckle dragger bikes. And we wanted to like kind of pay tribute to that a little bit with the sloping top tube, but, you know, have it still be realistic with a 700 C front wheel. And like, I think the front end of that bike's only maybe, 10 millimeters lower than like a flat top tube bike, but it, it gave the appearance of, you know, being this sort of racier position. Were you surprised by the global interest that very quickly developed? It was great. I mean, still to this day, like track bikes are really a microscopic, you know, piece of the pie within cycling. But yeah, there was definitely a, a wave of excitement, um, for the bikes, you know, that came around, you know, 2007, eight, nine, um, where it had opened the doors for, you know, exposed a lot of people to these bikes. And I felt like what came of it, there was definitely like a fashion piece to it where some people just liked the fashion of it and they didn't stay in it very long, but just by numbers, since there was an increase in people riding those bikes, there was an increase in the numbers of people that became athletes through it. And we were really glad to see that some percentage of people had really fallen in love with these bikes through this. I definitely got interested because of the whole aesthetic, I think. I mean, I love the aesthetics of cycling in general, but I think the fact that what you were doing was coming from San Francisco, which is obviously a long way from London and feels relatively exotic. And it was a time when I was just exploring all sorts of bits of cycling. And also, I think the designs of the kit, I am I am going to send you a picture because I'm sitting here wearing a very old MASH kit, like the, oh, the rainbow yeah. one. <laughs> the rainbow one with the cap, I think it might have been designed by Garrett Chow. Would that be right? Yeah, I did that one with Garrett. 
So it was that whole look of it that was so different from other things out there. And also the fact that you really seemed to be pushing what you were doing on track bikes. I mean, racing up some of the crazy steep hills in San Francisco and then doing other things like the whole of the tour of California on fixies. Um, did that <laughs> feel like a, a natural progression, Chaz, to do more and more difficult and dangerous things on, on fixies? It wasn't even like we were trying to do like more difficult and dangerous things. I think it just once again comes down to like what we thought would be really, really cool and really fun. Like a lot of these times that you're talking about were really when a bunch of us from MASH would get together and just kind of hang out and go do something, which in reality, like MASH was a race team, but ultimately MASH was just a bunch of people that liked getting together and hanging out and like doing weird stuff. So like we would go out to go bomb a hill and like a bunch of us would get together and inevitably the talk turns to like, well, what about this hill? Or like, what about that hill? Do you know about this? And so it's not like we were searching to like one up or like, you know, try and out dangerous our previous exploit. But I think a lot of it was just like, man, we were out on a ride and someone has an idea and everyone's talking. And because all the people in MASH were really kind of like-minded and motivated. And then Mike, really had the ability to kind of tie that to like harness that motivation and provide the little, the little bit of logistical support that kind of was that tipping point to make it actually happen. I think that's why you see a lot of this stuff like, like tour of California and like a lot of the stuff from like the 10 year video, you know, like Rainier bombing Tioga pass. That was something where it was just like, that just started out as like, man, that'd be a cool, com that'd be a crazy thing, right? Like we're out riding bikes, just idle conversation. And then, because, you know, Rainier's motivated and then Mike's like, cool, like at the van and then we get Martin and then we go camping and like, it just kind of, it becomes this kind of easy progression to like constantly step forward and like try new things because the motivation's there. And then there's also this like support system that has the logistics and is willing and able to kind of make the travel and everything happen, which is a lot of like Red Hook and all that stuff too. You say an easy progression, Chaz, which is true about all those things except for the bike riding itself, which looks far from easy, especially when you're bombing down the hill <laughs> and the legs are spinning at 200 RPM. It looks really, it looks really scary. It must be a massive buzz though. Well, I mean, here's the thing. And I, I look at this now and I, I look, watch those videos and like me and Mike have had a bunch of conversations about this as of late where we're like, man, we were fucking crazy. Like the, the stuff we did, that's <laughs> like physically, like you said, like that's incredibly dangerous. It's, it takes a lot of physical skill. It's like, you're really pushing all these boundaries but to be honest, at the time, it didn't – we never thought about it like that. I mean, I, for me personally, like I was working as a bike messenger through a lot of this. So it was one of those things where like the stuff that I would do on a daily basis on my track bike in San Francisco made everything else kind of just seem kind of pale in comparison. But at the same time, like Rainier and all the other guys, like especially like Rainier, Walt, and Kyle, they got into like – they kind of moved more into like kind of the pro cycling and the more serious bike racing aspect of everything – and, you know, Kyle Murphy's still currently a pro cyclist riding for Raleigh, but they were, you know, when you start racing like pro level criteriums, you know, that's super dangerous and that's super fast. So it's weird because the way that we looked at it is we were always like, we didn't think about it as being super dangerous or super challenging. If anything, it was like the fun outlet that was not as serious as a lot of the other things that we were doing on a bike. And I think a lot of it is also just that we were super comfortable on track bikes. Like we've been riding track bikes for so long that Maybe we just blinded ourselves to the danger because we've been doing it so much. I don't really know, but it, it just—it's weird because like I, I we we talked about this a lot where we we go film and do all these things and we were like at the time it wasn't a big deal, but now looking back you're like that was that was fucking crazy. What were we thinking? <laughs> but I don't know what we were thinking. We just having a good time. There must have been some epic crashes though and accidents or not. 
You know, not really. That's one of the things is that like there was never any pressure from Mike to really push yourself above and beyond. Like he was always there to stoke you out, but there was never this like you have to get this clip. Like I know in like pro skateboarding, you know, like there's a lot of like you have to get this clip for the video part, for the ad. And people will go and like throw themselves down like a 15 stair rail like 30 times trying to land a trick because like there's a lot of pressure from the photographers and the sponsors and all that. But there was never any pressure from Mike to like go do something you weren't comfortable with. The sponsors were never, you know, there was never any pressure from any sponsors that I can remember to like win or like do anything crazy. We were just really good at it. Maybe I don't want to like, I don't want to sound like conceited or anything, but I feel like we always rode within our abilities. And because what we were doing with MASH was generally the fun kind of extracurricular, I guess, biking that we were all doing. We never really felt the need to risk ourselves to the extreme. That being said, I know that I've crashed a ton working as a bike messenger. <laughs> and I know that like Walton and Kyle and Rainier and those guys crashed a ton racing road bikes. And so I, I honestly feel like we saved our like really crazy death defined moments for when we were racing or working on a bike rather than filming for MASH. Cause that was always, or even doing anything for MASH. Cause that was always just like something we did for fun. It's weird, but I feel like there was definitely like this. We kind of, we were like made sure we didn't like live fast die old we, we made sure we shredded really hard but we also made sure we could like we I, I couldn't break myself so i couldn't i wanted to make sure i could go to work on monday you know if we were out on some crazy trip riding bikes riding track bikes on the weekend or like we would go out on rides but like you know rainier especially was always like no i've got a race like rainier was really serious about racing so he'd be like no i mean I'm, I'm gonna like save it for the race like he wanted to make sure he was in good shape for the race so we kind of limited ourselves i don't think we limited ourselves but we we kept it clean Less dangerous, Mike, staying behind the camera rather than on the bike itself. I mean, I have brakes and I have like a, a band of power that's like right there on my wrist and I'm burning zero calories. So I'm at, what I'm doing is way, way easier comparatively. I've always thought, and I, a lot of us that have filmed and done this think that like the stuff that Mike does, especially Mike, you had brakes on the new, on the new bike. <laughs> that old scooter. Oh, <laughs> was yeah. Dude, he barely had brakes. When we filmed almost the entire 10 year video, Mike, every time we'd be like, every time we would meet up to film, Mike would be like, ah, oh, dude, I really got to fix the brakes on this. And then he would go follow <laughs> us down some crazy hill in traffic and just like, I don't know, don't let Mike poo poo away the, the amount of skill that it takes to like follow someone like doing that on a track bike. Cause we're picking the lines too. Like he's kind of at our mercy and we can get into situations that are, one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Really sketchy for a scooter. Whereas on a, on a track bike, you know, or on a bike, it's a little less sketchy. But he would always be right there behind us, you know, doing it. So, I mean, they're both hard. But don't let Mike pretend like it's not a challenge to drive a scooter and do what he does. Mike, it sounded like you've recently been reflecting on all of it with Chaz. Are you sort of looking back at the moment and thinking about how far it's come? Yeah, I mean, we're I'm 15 years in now on this project that I had no idea that I would have, you know, changed my career because of it. And um, I've always, since the very beginning, just like listened to the writers first and let them kind of dictate where we want this to go. And what kind of, what category of bike they want to be on, you know, potentially what film projects they want to be on, what format of racing they're interested in, and just try to contribute, you know, in a positive way to that. Um, and I'm always going to do that. I've, I didn't open this with a business plan and I, I've, you know, kind of in the beginning, I definitely ran it as a goal to break even, which turns out if you're a business person, you you're definitely going to lose each year. So he did that for years, but by opening the bike shop, it helped stabilize the project so that we were able to like travel a little bit more and, um, you know, have a door to the community where we could, you know, or help organize events and, you know, see faces and San Francisco is definitely a, a tourist destination. And so been lucky to have all these people from all around the world that, you know, walk in this small bike shop and kind of in, in awe. And then the first question is usually like, this is it. Like, I've been watching you guys for a decade and assumed that you are some, you know, division of something huge and it's all fits in this little room. It's pretty funny. I unfortunately haven't been, but the way you're describing it, Reminds me of going to the Supreme store in Manhattan like years ago. And, you know, you build up all these hopes and actually it's just a normal store. And, and the same with like Stussy in the sort of 90s, you know, it was like the holy grail for a, for a kid like me who was into, you know, like I say before, all the aesthetic of this kind of thing. And do you get the sense that people sort of hype it up in their, in their minds and they think it's something more than what it really is, which is just a bunch of mates enjoying themselves? I think there's a piece of that. I think that, you know, there's always been a little bit, like Chaz mentioned, like, you know, the competitive nature of like, oh, the Portland dudes might not like what the San Francisco guys are doing or whatever. And there's always been a piece of that. And oftentimes since like I had come from, you know, a photo video background that early on, I was able to like produce some content that, you know, felt like it was coming from, you know, from a bigger brand than it really was. So maybe that put on a lens that people thought it was a bigger thing and that we were this, you know, corporate giant. And so there's, there's like a slow understanding of, you know, what the ethos has been or what the mission statement's been from the beginning is like tried to maintain, you know, stay this small thing that's healthy and flexible and, 
that contributes in a positive way. And so it's really fun when you know, when people figure that out and want to double down on it because they really love that. Like cool sort of countercultural things down the ages that have stayed that way have then still influenced the mainstream. And, you know, you're, yeah, you're not the corporate man, but the corporate man has been massively influenced by MASH. I'm thinking some of the very biggest names in cycling specialized, for example, had designs done by Garrett, who designed your stuff back in the day and certain sunglasses companies and everything else. So there has been a big effect on the, the bigger names in cycling. I'm sure that we're on some mood boards somewhere. It's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> What's your take on that, Chaz? I mean, I, I have seen MASH. I've been presented with plenty of mood boards that MASH is on. Uh, <laughs> I think the thing is MASH is just really authentic. And like Mike was saying, like people think it's this, this big thing uh, and then they find out that it's really just like a small tight-knit group of people just having a good time together and i think that is really just an authentic thing because it's you know mike has taken great pains to keep it small and 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 flexible like he said so really kind of the authenticity kind of bleeds through a little bit um i think it's it, i mean i take it as a compliment i think me and mike have a difference of opinion here when it comes to people kind of like say biting the style or reproducing things that mash makes um and as a creator i totally see how it can be really frustrating to see people do something that you've already done or maybe take especially taking something that you were about to do and running with it but also imitation is a most sincere form of flattery so in my mind it's like well you know it means it means we're doing a really good job if everyone else is copying us and what we're doing but i definitely think that it's influenced a lot of a lot of things in the cycling industry big big and small if it's helped put more people on the bike that's all good for everyone i've noticed like we haven't talked much about the the current situation but we can get into that later about how many little kids are riding bikes in san francisco right now and i was sure that bikes would be dead for future generations but another silver lining has been all these parents are f- finally spending time with their kids and getting them outside and not having to grind for work so hard that they've had this time to teach them how to ride their bikes. And I think there'll be a wave of cyclists coming from this. It's great. I agree. And here in London, we're looking at, you know, two people are talking right now at the time of recording of the end of lockdown. And there's a discussion that more people are going to have to cycle to work because they don't want to be pressed up against each other on public transport. Um, what is the lockdown situation like where you are? You can still get out and ride a bike. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. You see some of your friends on Strava that are just killing it right now. Um, Dude, this is the age first, of the long think- ride. Yeah, I think people at first were maybe timid that they didn't want to flood the hospitals, but California's, you know, like if they crashed, but California has done a really good job at keeping the numbers low. So I think people realize, you know, if I'm riding alone, I can, I can, you know, work on my fitness. It's good for my immune system. And so the amount of people that are out, you know, maintaining their health has been really great. Chaz, how about you? I mean, yeah, like it's, we can ride outside. It's, I, I've, I've been having a lot of phone calls with friends and people that live in Europe, especially Italy and Spain. And it's just like, my heart goes out to them. You know, they're like, I think they just got the ability to go outside for like an hour or two to exercise after like five weeks of not being able to leave your house, which is, you know, we've, we're locked down. Like, you know, we call it a shelter in place here in California. It's pretty much the same as everything else. Uh, I think not, maybe not as strict. You're allowed to go out and like go get your groceries without getting a permit, but 
you know, they ask that you'd stay in your county. You don't drive to a different county. So a lot of, at least within my friend group, has been a lot of like, okay, how far can we ride from our houses? <laughs> and it's a lot of these rides and routes that we would normally drive to go do, but, you know, drive or take public. Most of them, when you take public transportation, you take like the, the BART, which is essentially the tube, you know, out to start a ride. But now we're like riding these same routes from home. And, you know, me and, me and some, like Sean from MASH, one of the other MASH riders, we've been slowly working towards a, a double century. And we're like at the quarantine, we only ride together one day a week and it's just us two and we don't ride with anybody else. But on like every Wednesday, we'll go and try and go a little further. And so we just, we just did like 170 last Wednesday. And then this upcoming Wednesday, we're going to try for the double century. But I feel like that's been a really common theme with everyone I know that's on a bike is people are, people that are not normally doing hundred mile rides are out there banging out like a century or two a week. Cause they're just like, this is, you know, there's nothing else to do. People are really getting into it, which is positive. And uh, like my, my, my girlfriend has a, my partner has a, an 11 year old. And we've been going on a lot of bike rides and just something that we've never really found the time to do before. So, and I, when we're out, you see like whole families out riding bikes. And so I think it is like a really big positive. I think there will be this like kind of groundswell of people that got really into bikes during the lockdown and then stuck with it. And you kind of get the sense that America as a whole needs that. I mean, yeah, California is different. The East Coast is different. But those bits in the middle where men in Lycra or Spandex are still looked at like they might get shot. Um, be nice to think that they might embrace riding a bicycle more seriously. Yeah. I mean, you'd love, you'd hope so. I think America is a really big place with a lot of different people. So what happens out, out here in California definitely may not may not necessarily trickle down. But I think the one really nice thing about Strava and Rider GPS and, you know, Wahoo and all these things allow people to track what everyone else is doing is that if you do ride a bike in somewhere where it may not be as culturally or socially acceptable it is, it is as it is on the, like in California, you can get really motivated because you see everyone else going out and doing this. And maybe if the locals, you know, still yell at you from their truck as they drive by, you're like, well, everybody else is out doing this. So I'm like, it's cool. It motivates me. It's like, you know, you feel like you're a part of something, it, you know, it's a double-edged sword because it's, it's tough when you see everyone else going on longer rides than you and you're like, oh, I'm blowing it. But ultimately it's, it's cool to kind of get this sense of solidarity that everyone's out doing kind of the same thing. I think the way you described it was people were initially reticent to ride because they thought might, they might have an impact on the health services was the same here in the UK. But now it seems that the health service is coping better than people expected. Then more people are out riding their bikes. The flip side is that we still can't travel. I mean, ordinarily, I would be doing this interview with you, Chaz, maybe, you know, climbing up a street in San Francisco. We'd stop by the shop and I'd see you physically, but that's going to be a while, I would imagine. Travel is still going to, you know, take a while to get back to normal, uh, hence recording the chat like this. Um, I'd just like to finish off, though, by talking more about the evolution of the kind of cycling you do, because obviously, Chaz, you and the rest of the guys have raced Red Hook Crip, which is, you know, seems like a natural progression of that Alley Cats, but more recently cyclocross and then also bikepacking. Is that just an age thing? What, how, how has it evolved? I don't think it's an age thing, really. I mean, I was going on bike tours before I even got on a track bike. Um, I think bikepacking has just <laughs> gotten really, it's gotten really uh, kind of trendy, which is amazing. Um, but that was actually what I did before I even, yeah, before I even got a track bike, I was bike touring um, and bike camping and stuff. But I think ultimately it, it's just kind of what you're searching for. I think like Red Hook was an evolution from Alley Cats because 
alley, like we all raced out. Most people race alley cats because of the speed, right? You just got addicted to this, like, you're the fastest thing on, on the streets. You're faster than any car. You're faster than traffic. It's just this, like, pure speed. But it was so loosely organized, you know, like you could cheat and like the rules were like, you know, really vague at best. And sometimes you were encouraged to cheat. And there's a lot of like local favoritism, you know, like locals knew the streets, they knew the organizers. And so Alley Cats was just kind of like the wild west of like speed, basically. And then on, on track bikes and then Red Hook kind of distilled that and brought the speed to the forefront and was like, no, this is all about speed. It's not about like how well you can dodge traffic. It's not about how well you know the streets. It's not about, you know how well you know the local organizer and it kind of leveled the playing field and kind of purified the speed in a way so for for us initially red hook was just like man we can go like way faster you know and so we did that and like i you know mash was like the first team that showed up with a team and raced with team tactics and had like matching kits and you know matching bikes and really kind of tried to bring that like kind of pro road race feel aesthetic to red hook which i think is funny because we're kind of the anti pro road race team but we were definitely the first team to show up to red hook looking like a, a professional team and like what was that barcelona like 2012 or something first barcelona and then from that i mean i don't know for me personally like i think in a lot of a lot of people red hook and the fixed year criterium scene got a little too serious like it kept on growing and it's amazing to see professional athletes show up and like the big sponsorship money and really i'm not disparaging that in any way like i love lining up against pro cyclists to race a track bike but it got to the point where you had to dedicate a certain amount of time in training to be able to be competitive was unrealistic. Whereas like something like ultra endurance or bike packing races, you didn't necessarily have to dedicate as much training time. Like a lot of it was just like, you just get on your bike and you start riding. Um, there is a little more obviously like money involved in the equipment and the, the travel and everything. But, you know, for me and like Nico, especially like something like transcontinental, that's just a big alley cat. You know, they just, they give you your checkpoints and you got to hit the checkpoints in order and how you get to the checkpoints is up to you. And the first person done is done. Like that's essentially an alley cat just spread over a continent. So we really saw that as like kind of get, going back to our roots in a way while keeping it different. So definitely an evolution. But I mean, I think the goal has always still just been to like kind of chase, chase that enjoyment and that feeling. Mike, final question to you. What is coming next for MASH? Um, I don't look that far ahead, um, but I definitely... I'm starting to get out and film a little bit more again. Uh, there was a, you know, a, a six weeks or something when we felt like we shouldn't be out there, but things are starting to change and we want to be able to, to share that, but we're not trying to like get into the Olympics. We just want to, I would say like the, the last few years has been a lot about product development and like t taking on, you know, manufacturing ourselves for the bikes and stuff. So it was like going to school for that. And now I feel like really comfortable that that's not, uh, doesn't have to be like 24 seven that we can be more creative. I can spend more of my time being creative. Uh, so I look forward to that. Really good. Look, it's, it's so good to talk to you. Like I said before, it'll be much better to actually be in San Francisco and actually get out next on a time. bike and make next time, exactly when the lockdown ends. Uh, but for now, Mike, Chaz, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. Thanks yeah, for taking course. time, man. Good to talk. See you soon, Chaz. Take care. Stay well. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.